0: All right, back to the Talmud, back to the Gemara and Yaakov, moral and ethical teachings of the Talmud. We have begun a new series of tractate sota, and we're in the middle of discussing a little tangent. We started off with the topics of adultery, which is the general theme of the tractate, the suspected adulteress, the sota, and we start we had a few quotes a few teachings about sin you had a few teachings about what might lead a person to uh, come close to engaging in adultery and what engaging in adultery might lead to or what sins might lead to adultery and so on and in that little tangent we ended up in a discussion about washing your hands and you your dime before a meal before eating bread um, the importance of doing that the significance of doing that and we are continuing along that theme here Um. Somebody eats bread having washed but not dried his hands. Okay? Because you have to dry them as well. And it says that in halacha that you you must dry your hands thoroughly before you make Hamotzi. See? Um, so if you eat bread without drying your hands, <laughs> it's as if he's eating bread that is impure. Which, of course, he wouldn't be able to eat. the verse says. <laughs> This is how the Jewish people will eat their bread of impurity amongst the nations in which I will expel them to. Um, I guess the implication is that this is some that the context there is a bit of a punishment. There's a negative uh, form of eating bread. Um, And so the train of thought is that because in that verse Yecheskel, the prophet Ezekiel, was commanded to bake bread of a certain recipe, which you know in the supermarkets as Ezekiel bread, and he was taught to bake it. He was told to bake it over human waste, which is pretty disgusting and nauseating, and that that bread is called impure, as a synonym for for, for, for disgusting. So the the idea that somebody would wash his hands but not dry them, it's not very dignified. To eat with what with wet hands, and that's disgusting. So the Talmud here calls it as if you're eating uh, impure bread. Okay. Um, next piece of the Talmud: My ish nefesh What is the meaning of the verse in the book of Mishle, the Book of Proverbs, which says um, um, that a, the, a a man's husband will be ensnared? by a precious soul. What does that mean? And that's the ending of the verse. We quoted before, we had another verse from Mishlei. It was actually not another verse, the beginning of this verse, that a person will pay a loaf of bread for a uh, promiscuous woman. So the ending of that verse is <clears throat> that a um, uh, uh, the, the wife of a man, uh, a married woman, will be ensnared by a precious soul. What is that, what is that supposed to mean? It's a very cryptic verse. Rabbi Abba said, in the name of Rabbi the meaning is, It's a very good reminder for life in general. If you have an arrogant spirit, the terminology used in the Talmud for an arrogant spirit is literally thick thick spirit as opposed to thin which would imply the 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 thick and thin is is kind of a um you know terminology for refined or coarse right so you have like let's say uh you're grinding pepper right you could have a coarse grind black pepper you could Mm -hmm. have a fine Mm -hmm. grind black pepper um in human characteristics you could also have somebody who is just a coarse personality Not delicate, not sensitive, not refined. Um, Lacking tact, lacking class, lacking manners, respect, decency. The stuff that's sort of in between the lines. Um, And so the Talmud used the expression of gasus Aruach, literally thick, coarse spirit, to describe arrogance. Um, So somebody who possesses such an arrogant spirit, or is just literally course individual it's actually interesting in yiddish also um the term is used it's called grub grub literally means thick but it also means it's used as somebody who is just not refined and not lacks dignity lacks tact lacks the characteristics that make a human being better than an animal are all the things that this person is lacking so, such a person, let's ish, eventually will sin with a married woman. The, verse, the proof is, the verse says, that a married woman will be ensnared by a precious soul. A precious soul, an allusion to the idea of somebody who is very arrogant. Precious in their own eyes. Right? I'm so precious to myself, that is the, uh, that's the ground zero of, of arrogance. Omar um, Rava Rav says the challenge is high nefesh nefesh gavaya That's You call that a precious soul? That's not a precious soul. Arrogance isn't, isn't a precious soul. Should have, if that's what the verse wanted to convey, it should have said nefesh gavaya, a high soul, somebody who thinks he's higher, greater, bigger than everybody else. He um, tatsu Furthermore, the verse should have said that she will ensnare him. What are you trying to say? That somebody who is arrogant is liable to fall into the trap of adultery. So that means that the woman will ensnare him because of his weakness. His Achilles heel is his arrogance. Mm -hmm. That's opening the door to his falling into sin. So um, rather says that that interpretation can't be true. I have a different um, proposal. Anyone who is intimate with a married woman, even if he had studied Torah, in which the Torah is described in Mishle as being more precious than pearls, which means, what do we mean when you say the Torah is more precious than pearls? That, that's almost a silly thing to say. Right? It's almost like saying, uh, my children are more valuable to me than my car. That's not even a meaningful statement. So what does it mean the Torah is more precious than pearls? That, that, that's, that's not a meaningful statement. The so interpretation is, as a bit of a tangent, that the Torah is more precious <clears throat> than the Kohen or the high priest, who would go into the Lifnai Lifnim, the chamber within a chamber, in other words, the Kodesh HaKadashim, the most innermost chamber in the, in the temple, um, and do the service there in Yom Kippur, that um, Torah st- takes precedence over that. Where do we see that? Because, like Rashi points out here, <clears throat> that if you have a choice, between honoring a Torah scholar who comes from illegitimate ancestry, right? He may be legally a bastard, not in the colloquial sense, but in the legal sense. But he's a Torah scholar. He's a bona fide Torah scholar. His ancestry is not his fault. And you have, on the other hand, you have a Kohen Gadol, the high priest, the chief of all the Quran, who is illiterate. Who should lead, let's say you have a choice, who should lead the uh, benching? You want to give the honor to someone? You're supposed to give the honor to this Torah scholar who's who's a bastard over the high priest who's illiterate. Why? Because again, that's the value of the Torah. The Torah is more precious mm-hmm. than somebody who has the status. He's a person who goes into the, the Holy of Holies. I mean, that's pretty special. Take a seat, young man. We have here a Torah scholar. He's superior. So um. So the, the verse that Rav finishes his interpretation, whoever is intimate with a married woman, even if he had studied Torah, um, that will, the, the woman will capture him to the judgment of Gehenna. In other words, it won't help. The fact that you study Torah won't help. The sin of adultery is so severe that although the Torah does put you on a pedestal when it comes to um, things like you know, your comparison with a Kohen Gadol who's illiterate, and you are a Torah scholar that will, that will you know, give you a leg up on that, um, the sin of adultery is even greater, and override that, and um, you will be subject to judgment in Gehennam. So therefore, my friends, be very careful, never ever be intimate with a married woman. Okay, we'll pause here to be continued. Just one more comment. It's actually fascinating how open and candid the Talmud is about this topic, about sexual temptation in general, adultery, immorality. There's no sort of Victorian sense of Ooh, we, we, we're not gonna talk about this. It's you know, we're not prudish about it. We don't, you know, joke about it. But if something needs to be addressed in this department, the Talmud addresses it head on. No problem. And I think it's it's important for us to take note of that and say. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Every healthy human being is liable to be tempted by this. There's a reason that when the Torah says that the um, the Jewish people were crying when Moshe Rabbeinu taught them the laws of all the forbidden relationships, because it's the hardest thing to do to to deny yourself that kind of pleasure, and to be disciplined in that in this department in this arena is very difficult. And there's no shame in admitting that it's difficult and challenging, and that we are tempted, and we have to be vigilant, and we have to inspire ourselves, and strengthen ourselves, and take appropriate precautions, and so on. The fact that the Talmud can be so, you know, candid and blunt about this topic really should open us up to, you know, being vulnerable and saying, "Yeah, this is this is hard. This is difficult. This is a challenge. I have to watch out here and watch out that." And we support each other instead of pretending like, "Yeah, it's no sweat. I, I don't really care about women or men." Wherever you may be, but um, it's good to have that attitude that you know this is a bona fide, this is a real issue that real human beings struggle with, and and nobody should feel like they're uh, a failure for for having the struggle. On the contrary. Okay, this is actually a very historic moment because the whole podcast began on campus as a recording of lunch and learns, and it started and sputtered and started to gain momentum, and then COVID. And then whatever podcasts I've produced the last two years have been me alone in my house, not Plan A. The whole thing was Plan B. So now we're back to Plan A, and it's very exciting. And uh, we're sitting on campus. It's a beautiful day, sitting outside. Students are here. We're having deli sandwiches, and it's a good time. So I wanted to talk about, not necessarily the Parsha, but have a discussion about the concept known as Teshuvah. I know you may have heard of this term before or not. We're going to explore it. We're going to discuss what it means, what it doesn't mean. But it is a major theme of the High Holidays. It comes up a lot in prayers, in the Torah readings, in teachings, in readings, and anything that you might you know, reflect on during the High Holidays, this concept comes up a lot. So for starters, have you ever heard of the term Teshuvah before? You have? Okay. To the best of your knowledge, what does Teshuvah mean? So, oh, I know it means repentance, but the word in Hebrew, like Lashuv, is like, to return. Uh huh. Okay. So, we have a contradiction. Or a multiple interpretation, at least. What does shuba mean, as far as you know? I was going to say the same you're thing. You're going to say the same so thing? Is return. Okay. Okay. So, you're both right. It is definitely commonly translated as repentance. Um, When you hear the word repentance, if we played played word association, what does the word repentance conjure up in your mind? What does it make you think of? How do you feel? Yom Kippur. Yeah? It makes me think of Yom Kippur. Okay. Any emotions attached to that word? Guilt. Guilt. Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness? (laughs) <laughs> okay. Very good. Very good. So, let's, let's take a moment just to pause on that difference right there. The difference of, of translating the word as repentance versus translating it as return. Repentance, if you look it up in the dictionary, basically means to make amends, to, to fix what you've done wrong. You've done something terribly wrong and now you have to fix it, right? So, you forgot it was your spouse's anniversary... Or your, father, or your spouse's birthday, and you want to repent for that sin, so you buy an extra special, extra large birthday gift two weeks later because you want to do repentance for what you've, you know, the harm that you've caused or the hurt that you've caused or the neglect that you've injected in your relationship. Return has a very different meaning. Return is you're going back to a place you were, you can only return to a place you once were, otherwise, it's not return, it's just a journey or a a trip. Returning means I used to be here, or even more, I belong here, and I'm returning. A classic example, when you return home after being away in university. Home is home, university was only ever uh, a short-term departure from home, and now you're back. It's a very different connotation than the whole concept of repentance. And it's actually very instructive, and it's very important to bear in mind that as we go through all the High Holidays, what we're talking about, Shuva is much more about returning than about repenting. Okay? And we'll, we'll flesh that out a little bit more, but it's much more important to, to, to focus on that meaning of the Word than, than to, than to uh, get stuck on the repentance. Because like Jilly said, for many people, I think this is true, it does conjure up a lot of guilt. And guilt really doesn't help the relationship between us and God, between us and our inner self. So, okay, so we have a basic definition of what teshuva means. What, How do you do teshuva? What, What is the process? Like, what do I have to do? Let's say I'm interested in doing Teshuvah. What do I do? First you have to reflect. Okay. Like, go out and you, seek forgiveness. Okay. Forgiveness. And you can think of this, by the way, not only in terms of, of you know, the religious relationship with God. You can think of this in terms of human relationships also. It's no, the same mechanisms, the trying same, the same uh, dynamics are at play. I think trying to give back. Trying to give back. To get rid of like the sins and guilt you felt. Uh huh. Actions like uh, improving your actions so uh-huh. that doesn't happen again. Right. Like setting a forever calendar reminder for yeah. their birthday. Like yeah. I'm never gonna forget. Yourself? Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, let me ask you. Let me ask you the same question from a different angle. What might some people think constitutes teshuva, but actually doesn't? Uh, like someone saying you're sorry, but then not doing anything different. Okay, that's a great example. The Talmud has a metaphor for that. It's called. Um, immersing in a mikvah but you have a dead rodent in your hand. A dead rodent makes you spiritually impure. Immersing in a mikvah makes you spiritually pure. But if you go through the process of spiritual purity while holding something that makes you spiritually impure, you're not going, you're spinning your wheels. I think an example would be like saying that you like forgive the person, say that they, they, they that that person will work on themselves, but they actually don't. So they're yeah. just like, they don't really care uh-huh. about how you feel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, these are all insincere, not-gonna-cut-it attempts. Now, technically, in Judaism, we're taught that in order to do teshuva, you have to express regret for what you've done. In other words, you have to acknowledge what you've done. You can't make excuses. You can't justify it. You know, have you ever, you ever see these public apologies by you know politicians or celebrities of something they've done wrong or they were caught doing something and they you know, if you were offended, I am sorry. Whoa, 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 what does that mean? And if I wasn't offended, you're not sorry? Do you agree that you did something wrong? Do you acknowledge that you messed up or not? Is it conditional yeah. on my opinion? What, what is that? Right? So the first step is it's called regret, karata. And karata means I first and foremost agree and accept that I've done something wrong. I violated the terms of this relationship. I've disrespected the relationship one way or another. And I regret it. I wish I hadn't. I'm sorry that I did. Not I'm sorry I was caught. Not I'm sorry you're offended. I'm sorry that I did what I feel and I agree and I think is truly objectively wrong. I wish I wouldn't have done it. I wish I could get that moment back. That's regret. I'll tell the story of a, a few Russian uh, fishermen who were standing on the riverbanks once, and it was after the winter when the, when the ice is starting to thaw, and the, the water is really rushing rapidly down the, the river. It's pretty dangerous. Like, the current is very strong. And they were kind of discussing if it was a good idea to get in the boat or not to get in the boat. And all of them said, you know, this is not a good time to get in the boat. You have to wait. It's not the right season. And one guy's like, you know, I think I'm going to try. I think I'm going to try. And all his friends are saying, don't do it. Don't do it. You can't do it. So, no, I'm a good fisherman. I know how to handle a boat. It's the current. I'll current. I'll figure it out. I'll navigate. It's good. No, no, don't do it. Back and forth. He gets in the boat of course within 10 seconds the boat's out of control and it's just flying down the river and he knows it's not going to end well it's going to crash into a tree or a rock or like he's in he's in trouble and he starts calling out to his friends help save me why did it why did you let me go in the boat i wish i wouldn't have gone in the boat and there was a chassid who heard of the story he said that's regret that's regret you know it's not saying uh, maybe I'm sorry, I think I'm sorry. It's like, oh no, my God, it's from the bottom of your heart, like, oh my God, what was I thinking? That's step one. Um, we also do this through, you know, in terms of the spiritual relationship with Hashem, we do this through confession. and Yom Kippur, especially, the Al prayer prayers, non stop acknowledging and, you know, admitting what we've done. It's the first step. Without that, you can't talk about Teshuvah. Um, you also can't talk about teshuvah if there aren't any objective expectations or, or rules of, of, of the relationship. Um, you know, nothing to do teshuvah for. If everything is, if, if if everything is true and everything is okay, then nothing matters. We've entered the world of nihilism, and I have nothing. To do, I have nothing to do teshuvah for ever. You know, I killed my grandmother. So what? That's just how I felt about her at the time. There's nothing objectively wrong. You have to have an objective moral system in the first place to even have a conversation about teshuva. Otherwise, everybody does their thing and it's fine. Everybody does whatever they feel like doing. So that's another sort of fundamental aspect of you have to have that in place for teshuva. Um And then, like you mentioned, both of you said, the next most important step is that there has to be a resolution to do something different in the future and actually change. And, and you know change your ways, change your behavior. And that's sort of both all on the technical side of things okay so you have to express regret acknowledge what you've done wrong change your ways change your behavior at least accept and promise to change and follow through um but in spiritual you know what i call psycho-spiritual terms you know the psychology and the spirituality of the whole experience of teshuva there's something very very profound about this because the only possibility that 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 allows for teshuva is that between us there's a depth in the relationship that is never going to be affected by what you do there's something unconditional in a conditional relationship if that's all it is then if you've pissed me off if you've disrespected me and you've lost my trust that's over you know the plumber who doesn't show up three times I'm not calling him anymore it's over we don't have an unconditional love for the plumber if you don't show up if you're not dependable you're not reliable that's it the relationship is gone. I'm, not, I'm never calling you again. And it will be very hard for that plumber to do teshuva. I'll have to go really impress me. Like you'll have to do something really crazy and, and gain my trust again. For the most part, it's over. But in our more personal relationships, family, friends, spouses, God, there is something that's beyond the day-to-day. There is a bond that goes deeper than what have you done for me lately. There is something unconditional there. And it's on that basis that we can talk about Teshuvah. I'm always going to give you another chance. You're my sister. You're my dad. You're my kid. You're my spouse. I I have no choice, almost. Like, how can I ever cut you off forever? It's not really part of who we are. And if that ever happens, it's very unfortunate, and it's it's very sad, and something's very severely broken, and it can still be repaired. But Teshuvah actually, when the process happens, it actually expresses and proves it illustrates that there was always something much deeper in this relationship than just the quid pro quo of you do this, I do that. It's that even if you don't do this, or even if you disrespect it, even if you ignore me, even if you violate the relationship, there's always something there that can be the foundation for it to be reborn and rejuvenated. So teshuva actually taps in to the depth of the relationship that if you had never violated it, if you have never done anything wrong, you would have never been able to discover that there's this depth because you've just been going on the surface, everything's cool, you're just go along. A relationship that's never challenged can never discover how deep it is. It's kind of the paradox of betrayal. If you betray your spouse, your good friend, or God, yes, you shouldn't have, fine, that's in the past, now, now what? Now you get a chance to discover how deep the relationship actually is, because you're going to find that you always have another chance, you'll find that they're always willing to accept your teshuva. If you're sincere, if you do it, if you work it, you put in the effort, you'll see that your parents are going to give you another chance. Your spouse are going to give you another chance, and so on. And for sure Hashem gives you another chance. Now, Maimonides has a very interesting list, about 24 things that he says block or prevent a person from doing Teshuvah. It's a long list, not going to go through all of them. I did want to highlight one, which happens to be one of my, one of my personal favorite Moral principles for personal growth. This is a personal growth hack from 1,500 years ago. (laughs) Oh no, Maimonides was was less. He's 900 years ago. Okay? Personal growth hack from Maimonides. One of the things that blocks a person from from doing teshuva is somebody who hates criticism. If you're a person who hates criticism, cannot accept criticism, always gets defensive when you're critiqued, if somebody points something out that you've done something wrong you blow up or you point fingers or you justify it you make excuses or whatever you will never be able to do it to because the moment someone and it's very clear to see why i point out you know you were late to the meeting well you know my cat had my cat vomited and it wasn't my fault okay so The next time something happens, you're going to do the same thing. You're just going to show up late. You're not going to let anybody know. People are waiting for you. You're just going to be irresponsible and expect everybody to just give you a pass. You're never going to change. You're never going to take accountability. This is my life. Once heard somebody say, the moment you accept full responsibility for everything that's in your life, full accountability, that means you have full power. Everything is my fault. I want it to be that way. People sometimes feel, oh, if it's somebody else's fault, then I'm off the hook. If i don't have to accept accountability then good i'm safe i'm not in trouble that's really a very immature way of looking at it because what you're doing then is saying i'm not in control of my life somebody else is in control you've given up accountability and you're not in trouble this time good short-term win but you've actually basically said somebody else is in charge i don't get to call shots in my life i'm not in charge i don't make decisions it's a terrible place to be we want to be in a position of autonomy and full control package deal is, you have to always accept responsibility and accountability for everything, fine, it's worth it. That's the way to live. So the Rambam says, if you hate criticism, you're in trouble. Now there's a story, and I have to tell you about this. Um, Fifth Chabad Rebbe, who lived late 19th century, early 20th century in Russia, had sent one of his students to Israel, early 1900s, to start a yeshiva in the city of Hebron. I think later they moved it to Jerusalem. And this is like before sort of the the major Zionist push of settling Israel. This is what's called the early Yishuv, the early settlement of Jews in Israel in the 19th century, early 20th century and so on. And he went and, you know, it was tough going. So the Rebbe writes him a letter from Russia to Israel saying, you know, you've been there for five years. Where are the students? Where is the development of the school? Where is the building? Where is the... Like, we don't hear anything. Like, you're sleeping at the wheel. This letter is printed. I've seen it. It's about five pages long. And it's five pages of critique. It's rough, it's very intense. But at the end, he adds this paragraph. He says When I entered into the communal service, working for the community as a rabbi, my father, who was the rabbi then, called me in. He said, I want you to understand some of the nature of communal work you're working for a community there are going to be people that praise you and say you do a great job there are be people that critique you and say you're not, doing, you're not doing such a great job you need to learn to ignore all praise let it bounce right off of you because the praise will make you lazy and indulgent and, and, and content don't pay attention to the praise don't let it get to your head what about the critique? it said cherish it cherish the criticism Because that will take you to the highest heights, the truest heights. Because you're blind to your own faults. We all have biases. It's every human being. It's very normal. We all want to feel good. We all want to feel comfortable. And we're going to deflect and deflect and ignore and excuse and rationalize and justify everything that's wrong, everything that we're not doing the best that we can. Not living up to our capacity, our potential. Somebody else comes along, they don't have the same forgiveness and love for us like we do. They'll be a little bit more blunt, a little bit more honest that's your chance this is your chance this is your window somebody's finally cared enough to comment and say you know no offense you really need to take a shower it's been a week take a shower and you were excusing yourself and justifying it I'm using an extreme example and you got used to the stench somebody else comes along and says my god will you please take a shower and it wakes you up it's like oh my god yeah ah, shoot yeah it's really bad I do need to take a shower Time to, you know, time to snap into shape. And and this is the in general in life, it's such a life hack. It, if you don't have this figured out, like the Rambam says, it's going to block you from doing teshuva. You'll never grow. You'll always justify the status quo, and you'll stay put. If you if you allow yourself to move past the first moment of pain of oh, I failed again, oh, but a growth hack. It allows you to f- confront it, and you don't let it, you don't let it be swept under the rug. And if you care, which you do, you'll do something about it, and you'll grow. Now, my last question I want to pose to you is: What would you say is the mood if you had to give teshuvah, the process of teshuvah? You have to give it a mood. What mood would you give it? What would you say is the mood of teshuvah? I'm talking more of like an emotion. How would or should somebody who's doing teshuva feel during the process? Sad. It can be frustrating. But annoyed. Sad, frustrating, annoyed. Because? Like maybe they're not sure about the outcome, you know? You're not sure if it'll be accepted. Whether it's accepting or not. Mm. I think it's difficult The yeah, uncertainty. Yeah, uncertainty, anxious. Yeah, not sure if, it, if it'll work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that I'm could sure be pretty unsettling. You will grow as a person as right. well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you say, Julie? I was going to say, I think it's difficult to accept what you've done wrong. It's difficult to accept what you've done wrong, so, so therefore the mood is? Frustrating. You frustrating. Guess. You have to kind of push yourself. Yeah. Not blame something on other people and yeah. to actually blame yourself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. What'd you say? Sorry? Yeah, similarly to what Joey said, it's it's difficult to recognize um, in situations um, that, like, I need to own this. Like, I need to own my actions um, as mm-hmm. opposed to, like, placing the blame on someone else. Mm hmm. And like that can sometimes also be like embarrassing like, oh like i really messed up yeah no it's definitely there's definitely a lot of humiliation um getting into this and you have to be able to sort of absorb those body blows and and keep going not not let it stop you i will submit that there's another mood that can and should be part of the teshuva experience and that is quite simply love and joy because again if shuva is a possibility, it's only because there's a deeper element connecting the two parties here. And the fact that you have the chance of doing shuva is itself joyful. Like it's not over. That's good. You're making a sincere effort at fixing things. This is a good thing. The, the, all the negative emotions are more tied to what you've done wrong before. The reconnection, right? The healing in the relationship, this is all great. It might be messy, okay, wow. but it's good. It's not a sin. You're not re-sinning. You're not, you know, you're not forgetting the birthday again. You're trying to, you're trying to make it better. You're trying to heal and, you know, reconnect what was broken. So, overall, there should definitely be. I just want to make sure that people don't get carried away. with well, everything you said is true, 100%. It's all part of that emotional roller coaster. But I also want that people should, you know, be aware that there's room. Don't forget, there's room for love and joy in the Teshuvah process. And I'll conclude with a short story, that a rabbi once saw a fellow sweeping up the shul, You know, doing uh, basic maintenance. And as the guy was sweeping, he was singing as he swept. So the rabbi asked him, why you? Why you so? it was a singing a happy song. Why are you so happy? Yes, well, all right, it's a great honor. I get to sweep up the shul, the house of God. I'm happy to do it. So I'm singing a happy song. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure. I don't see this as a, a boring chore. So Rabbi said, A, that's great. B, you just give me a new insight into the joy of doing teshuvah because teshuvah is basically cleaning up your act, and it can be messy if you focus on the dirt. But you don't focus on the dirt. When you sweep the shul, you don't, oh, there's dirt, and there's, oh, it's so dirty. You know, I'm cleaning up. It's going to be beautiful. It's in the process of becoming beautiful. It's a happy thing. You don't focus on the dirt, you focus on the fact that you're in the middle of cleaning up. And that's a good thing, it's a positive thing, it's a healthy thing, and it's a happy thing. So Hashem should help us all that in this season, in this holiday season, we should be able to engage in honest, sincere teshuva, and to do it with joy, and to not let our, uh, our egos get in the way. And we'll have a year like we've never had before. There we go. Thank you for joining today. Stay tuned for more.